The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Okay, um, the topic for this morning is the Millennium and the New Jerusalem in Preterist Perspective. Revelation 20 Verse 2 says that an angel took hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And Revelation 20, verses 7 through 8 say, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 8 say, that when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations and gather them together for the war. Okay, I keep advancing my slides wrong. Um, In the passage itself, John himself sets the parameters of the thousand years for us with a very definitive beginning and ending point. It begins with the binding of Satan, which Jesus did during his earthly ministry, and ends with a war. More to the point, it ends with the war. As Mike Sullivan says, the definite article the is purposely placed in front of war to describe one very specific and important end-time war. So, this isn't just any old war, nor is this merely war in general. There's a certain specificity to it. It's the war. I don't know why my slides aren't advancing, right? (laughs) Okay, it's the war. It's not just any old war, it's the war. And with a major war... Looming on the horizon when John wrote the Roman-Jewish War, it's hard to imagine that his audience would have thought of any other major important war than the one they were about to see and experience with their own eyes. It's hard to imagine that he was expecting them to imagine some other war thousands of years in the future. With that said, again, I don't know why the slides aren't yeah, something's. I don't know. It's like they're. Um, hold on. Like when I hit it, there, there's like a delay when it advances. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. There's batteries up here. I don't know if they're. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. You know what? What's that? Yeah. You know what? I'll just use these. I think this works. Okay, so where are we? Okay, so going back to what I said. Um, it's hard to imagine that they would have thought of any other war than the, than the one they were about to see with their own eyes and experience in their own time. It's hard to imagine that John was expecting them to imagine some other war thousands of years in the future. That said, again, the text is clear. Jesus bound the strong man during his earthly ministry, and the Roman-Jewish war broke out roughly 40 years later, three and a half years before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So, this would mean 
that the thousand years is actually hyperbole for the 40-year period spanning from A.D. 26 to 66. And I've shared a few messages on this in the past. Having said that, however, this approach to Revelation 20 continues to come under fire. For example, Steve Gregg writes, the full preterist cannot responsibly exegete the passage. Okay, that's the slide I want. It's like it's a slide behind or something, but the full preterist cannot responsibly exegete the passage to render the the millennium as a symbol of 40 years during which nothing predicted in the passage occurred. This being so, thanks Dave, we'll see if this one works. (laughs) This being so, the new heavens and new earth that appear in chapter 21, coming as they do after the thousand years, cannot be identified with any first century fulfillment. First, it's ironic that he says the full preterist can't responsibly exegete the passage. And it's ironic because it's ironic because very little time is spent by the by those outside of full preterism to even exegete the passage to begin with. And if you've ever read one of those three or four views on the Millennium books, you know this is true. It's just amazing how little time is spent in the text of Revelation 20 itself. For the most part, these guys are scattered all over the Bible dealing with everything except Revelation chapter 20. A good example would be uh, the book Three Views of the Millennium and Beyond. Um, in that book, Ken Gentry, in that book, Ken Gentry, a great, a great scholar, spends the majority of his time dealing with everything but Revelation chapter 20, and he even admits. I don't know why there's like a delay or something. He even admits, I would prefer to leave Revelation 20 out of my presentation. It plays too prominent a role in the eschatological debate. Now, keep in mind, this is in a book specifically about the millennium of Revelation chapter 20. Okay, and while the irony of this is kind of funny, um, I actually appreciate his honesty here. The truth is that none of the three contributors in that book spend very much time at all in the actual text of Revelation 20 itself. To his credit, Gentry's the only one who actually acknowledges this. And Steve Gregg certainly spends no time... My slides are still, like, messed up. Steve Gregg certainly spends no time um, attempting an exegesis of Revelation 20 in his book Against Full Preterism, and this is perhaps the greatest irony of all when he says that full preterists don't responsibly exegete the passage. Next he says, the new heavens and new earth that appear in chapter 21 cannot be identified with any first century fulfillment. Now, if that's Greg's position, that's fine, but this really is an argument against full preterism in particular. In fact, much of his book 
is more of an argument against preterism in general rather than just full preterism, even though he claims to be some sort of a preterist. There's not a partial preterist I'm aware of who doesn't understand the new heavens and new earth of Revelation chapter 21 apart from some connection to the new covenant order inaugurated by Christ in the first century. Some of them see 2 Peter 3 or Romans 8, for example, exclusively as a literal future renewal of creation, but not Revelation 21. And case in point, Doug Wilson, he writes, Given the framework of the prophecy established by the prophet, the burden of proof is surely on those who want to maintain that the new heavens and new earth will not arrive for 2,000 years or more. If we take the statements of God's word at at face value, then we should conclude that the first heaven and earth passed away and was fulfilled. And my slides keep still messing up. I don't get it. That the first heaven and earth passed away and was replaced by the glorious reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we take the statements of of God's Word at face value, then we should conclude that the first heaven and earth passed away and was replaced by the glorious reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, um, if, if my slides weren't messed up, no full preterist has said it better then Doug Wilson says it right here. Another example would be Ken Gentry. In an article entitled The New Creation and Revelation, Gentry says, Elsewhere, Scripture teaches that the new creation, salvation, yeah, like that slide advanced too far. Elsewhere, Scripture teaches that the new creation, salvation, enters history before the final consummation. For for instance, says Gentry, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read language very similar to Revelation 21.1 and 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Then he adds, John's Old Testament backdrop is clearly Isaiah 65, and he says, notice that the new creation on earth still experiences sin, aging, and death in the physical realm, thus it cannot refer to heaven or eternity. So, if Greg has a problem with this interpretation of Revelation 21, he should take it up with Doug Wilson and Ken Gentry. Full preterists are an exclusive to his troubles here, and there's nothing unique to full preterism about this approach to Revelation 21. On the other hand, where Greg and Wilson and Gentry would agree would be on the idea that the millennium of chapter 20 can't possibly be a symbol for 40 years. For example, in a recent article, Wilson wrote, As all preterists know, not all the language of Scripture needs to be taken woodenly or literally. I 
I do not believe that the thousand years of Revelation 20 has to mean a literal 1,000 trips around the sun, but when language is symbolic, we have to remember that the symbol is always less than the reality. The marriage, the wedding ring is a symbol, the marriage is much the greater. The flag of the nation is the symbol, but the country it represents is far greater than the symbol. So, if someone wants to say the millennium represents 10,000 years of gospel glory, they've not lost me. But if they want everything to fit between 30 and 70 AD without using a shoehorn and a copious amount of axle grease, I begin to manifest a significant amount of incredulity. Now, first let me just say, I have all the respect for, in the world for Doug Wilson. And I think his commentary on Revelation, when the man comes around, is one of the best out there. And that's not just because it has a Johnny Cash song on the, as the title, although that doesn't hurt. The fact is, it's well-written, it's non-technical, and it's full of solid content. If you don't have a copy, get one. Wilson is a good scholar, one of the best. But let's take a moment to look at what he says here. Wilson says, we have to remember that the symbol is always less than the reality. But is that true, and is Wilson consistent here? Well, Revelation 9.16 speaks of the famous 200 million man army all on horseback. Your translation might say myriads and myriads instead of 200 million, but it's the same thing. And the problem with the idea that the symbol is always less than the reality is there are only 58 million horses on the entire planet. There have never been and will never be 200 million horses in the world. In fact, the heading for this section in his commentary even says countless horses, and Wilson writes, the invading army consisted of myriads and myriads symbolizing a staggering number. But he just told us that the symbol is always less than the reality. Nonetheless, he realizes, if taken literally, the symbol would be 200 million. Now, Wilson's point, of course, is that we can't possibly take the number literally, and I would agree with him, but if Wilson were to follow his own hermeneutic here, this passage would be speaking of even more horses than 200 million because the symbol is always less than the reality, according to him. So we can ask, is Wilson now using a shoehorn and a copious amount of axle grease, as he puts it, to make the symbol greater than the reality? Obviously, the symbol, 200 million, is working in the complete opposite direction than the direction Wilson says symbols always work. In other words, it's not being used as an understatement, the symbol being less than the reality. It's an example of hyperbole. In this case, the symbol is actually greater than the reality and not vice versa. And there would be nothing at all unusual in John doing this. Numeric hyperbole is a very common rhetorical device in the pages of Scripture. It's not hyperbole to say hyperbole. 
is all over the place in the Bible. And we've gone over these before, so I'll just review these real quickly. It starts at least as far back as the Exodus, where we're told that the number of men on foot who left Egypt was 600,000. Now, any good academic commentary, such as Eugene Carpenter's evangelical exegetical commentary on Exodus, will make the point that, if taken literally, this number is just impossible. It's too large, and it's hopeless to try and make it work if the number is literal. Why? Because if you factor in wives and children for those 600,000 men on foot, you're looking at a total population of at least 3 million Hebrews fleeing Egypt at the time of the Exodus. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and here's an aerial photograph of only a small portion of an actual crowd of 3 million people attending a Catholic Mass led by the Pope in 2013, and this speaks for itself. The 600,000 figure is obviously hyperbole used for rhetorical purposes. Now, apart from the 600,000 figure in Exodus 12, several other examples from Scripture can be cited. In 2 Chronicles 28.6, for example, Pekah, the son of Ramalia, kills 120,000 in Judah in one day for following Ahaz, the king of Judah, and forsaking the Lord. To get some perspective on this, it took an atomic bomb to kill 80,000 people in one day in Nagasaki. As Raymond Dillard says in his commentary on Exodus, the numbers of the dead are higher than is historically probable. I lost my place again. I don't know what's up with this. Okay, the numbers of the dead are higher than is historically probable. I'm so sorry, I don't know. Okay, the numbers of the dead are higher than is historically probable and would amount to the complete depopulation of Judah. Thus, Dillard says, it appears the chronicler intends to be using these large numbers as hyperbole. Another example, in 1 Kings 20.29, a wall in the city of Aphek falls on 27,000 enemies of Israel and kills them. Now, this had to be a really long wall. (laughs) Those who've done the math point out that we're looking at a structure comparable to the Great Wall of China. Again, a picture's worth a thousand words. There's simply no archaeological evidence of a wall this large at any time in the ancient world, much less a city big enough for such a wall to surround. And we go from walls to animals. According to... Why am I losing my place with these slides? Okay, and we go from walls to animals... Okay, according to 1 Kings 8 and the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep on the day of dedication of the house of the Lord. 
That's a total of 142,000 animals sacrificed in one day. <clears throat> in a 24-hour period, that's almost two animals sacrificed per second, and it would take over 100 football fields to contain the animals waiting to be sacrificed. And in his commentary on Second Chronicles, Raymond Dillard again makes the point that this is another obvious example of hyperbole. If we're going to be honest about these numbers, they just cannot possibly be taken literally. Another familiar example would be Samson killing a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. This would mean Samson was, killing, was taking out 41 Philistines an hour in a 24-hour period. That works out to killing a man every minute and a half non-stop without taking a lunch break or even stopping to go to the bathroom. And you get the impression of one of those over-the-top Marvel movies where Captain America's, you know, slicing and dicing the bad guys with a shield. Only the scene in the Samson movie literally lasts all day long. It's just unrealistic when you take the time to do, to do the math and run the numbers. And probably the biggest hyperbolic number in all of Scripture is the number of the sand of the seashore. As David Chilton points out, this is a hyperbolic image used repeatedly in Scripture. For example, it's used of the Canaanite nations conquered by Joshua. I lost my place. It's, it's like there's a delay or something. I don't know, but anyway. Okay, for example, it's used of the Canaanite nations conquered by Joshua, the Midianites overthrown by Gideon, the Philistine army facing King Saul, and the nations gathered for the battle of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20. The number of them, says John, is like the sand of the seashore. Now, if you thought the 200 million man army was big, think about this. There are 500 million grains of sand in one cubic, cubic square foot of sand alone, and even, even a tiny handful of sand contains 10,000 grains. And the typical beach totals 10.87 trillion, with a T, grains of sand. So regardless of how big the Midianite army really was, or the Canaanites, or the Philistines, or the nations gathered for Gog and Magog, there have never even been enough people alive on earth at one time to fit this number. And my point here is simply that the sand of the seashore is a symbol, and in this case the symbol is definitely greater than the reality. So it's simply not true that the symbol is always less than the reality. So hyperbole is just as legitimate, if not far more legitimate, with all the examples than understatement in understanding a term like a thousand. That said, if the thousand years of Revelation 20 is in fact hyperbole, why would it be hyperbole for 40 years specifically? Well, again, John sets the parameters for us himself. The thousand years begins with the binding of Satan and ends with a war. Jesus bound the strong man during his earthly ministry, and the Roman-Jewish war broke out 40 years later. 
But in addition to this, there's a strong Exodus theme in the book of Revelation. And this Exodus theme comes out in the symbolism that John uses. In fact, it jumps off the page in Revelation if we understand what John's trying to communicate with that symbolism. He's deliberately utilizing pictures of the Exodus to take his readers' minds back to the Exodus in order to signify they're moving forward in a new Exodus. Revelation 20, 1 through 3 tells us that the angel laid hold of the dragon and threw him into the abyss. Now, we always have to keep in mind that Revelation is a book of signs, symbols, and images. And that's the key, signs, symbols, and images. Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must shortly take place. He made it known by sending it to his angel, by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, the ESV says, made it known, and the New American Standard says, communicated. But both translations really fall short of the mark here. David Bentley Hart's translation hits it on the money. He signified this by sending it out through his angel. The word signified carries the idea of indicating something by a sign or a signal. As David Chilton wrote, now St. John says that these things were signified or signified to him by the angel. The use of this word tells us that the prophecy is not simply to be taken as history written in advance. It's a book of signs and symbols from beginning to end. Then Chilton adds, the only way to understand John's system of symbolism is to become familiar with the Bible itself. And this is what John expects from his readers. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. As Chris Lombardi points out, the word for read aloud also carries with it the idea of to recognize or to discern. In other words, John's expecting his audience to recognize where these signs and symbols occur in the Old Testament and discern what he's trying to convey by their usage. Now, with that in mind, what are some of the signs or symbols that John's expecting his readers to recognize? Well, again, he speaks of a dragon being thrown into the abyss. Hold on to those two words, dragon and abyss, and keep in mind what Chilton said. These are signs or symbols not meant to be taken literally. Having said that, Satan is a real being, but he's being represented as a dragon, and dragons aren't real beings. The question is, what's John expecting his readers to do with this imagery? Again, we have a dragon in the abyss. What connections does he want the reader to make? And most importantly, where do we go to find the answers? Well, we go to Scripture itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. With that in mind, the idea of a dragon in the abyss should take the reader's mind straight back to Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. And by the time we get to Revelation 20, John had already introduced the dragon imagery back in chapter 12. In that chapter, Satan's called the great dragon. 
This is the exact same phrase that Ezekiel uses in Ezekiel 29.3. In that passage, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is called the great dragon. The next question is, where did Ezekiel get the idea that Pharaoh was a dragon? And the answer is from Isaiah. Again, Scripture keeps interpreting Scripture, and Isaiah 51, 9-10 says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Who made, the depth of, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over. In this passage, the Exodus storyline is being poetically portrayed. And Isaiah says that God pierced the dragon when he dried up the sea. Now, there was no literal dragon chasing down the fleeing Hebrews, but Pharaoh's being called a dragon by Isaiah. And in Revelation 20, the ultimate adversary, Satan himself, is now being called a dragon by John. In other words, John's echoing the Exodus theme. He's tipping the reader off to the idea that the new and greater Exodus was taking place. And this dragon, Satan, is being thrown into the abyss, just like Pharaoh and his armies were thrown into the abyss at the time of the Exodus. In the Song of Moses, after the people reach the other side, they sing, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea, and the abyss covered them, and they went down like a stone. In the book of Revelation, the adversary is once again covered in the abyss, only this time the dragon isn't Pharaoh, it's Satan himself, and the Exodus connection is loud and clear. As Stefan Recoy writes, because of the long tradition in the Jewish community, readers would immediately understand. John's presenting images and symbols, creating an Exodus environment for the Asian Christians similar to the time of Moses. So the imagery John's using in Revelation 20 has Exodus written all over it, as does the imagery throughout the entire prophecy. For example, as just about every commentator recognizes, the judgments in John's prophecy are loud echoes of the plagues of Egypt. And in Revelation 15, just like Exodus 15, they sing the Song of Moses, the bondservant of God. Now, why sing the Song of Moses in the book of Revelation? Because the book of Revelation is all about the Exodus. Only it's about the greater exodus, the final exodus, the new exodus made possible by the new Moses, Jesus Christ. And this time, it's not about the Israelites leaving Egypt. It's about all people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and color leaving spiritual darkness and coming into His marvelous light. In other words, He's opening the way for all people to be free. That said, if the first exodus lasted 40 years, do we really believe it's taken 50 times as long, 2,000 years, and we're still in a state of exodus? 
do we really believe that Jesus Christ, the new and greater Moses, has not taken us to the promised land of the new heaven and new earth? And Exodus is a period of 40 years, not 2,000 or more. And the expression, a thousand years, is simply being used as hyperbole. And it's hyperbole to signal that this time around, the new Exodus is going to be that much greater than the first. And to use the expression in the reverse, as the post and amillennialists do, as understatement rather than hyperbole, is to completely diminish and demean the accomplishment of the new and greater Moses in the new and greater Exodus. And I think this is just so important because we need to know where we are on God's timetable so we can know who we are and who He expects us to be and what we're supposed to be doing in this world today. We're not in the millennium now. We're not waiting for the millennium to start. The Exodus is over. Jesus and His first century followers did their job. They got us to the promised land of the new heavens and new earth. And I think it's high time that we as believers, we started living and acting like it. It's high time we stop living and acting like we're still in a state of exodus in a world where we don't belong. We need to realize this is His world now and we have work to do. When the Israelites made it to the land of Canaan, They were supposed to occupy it and change it. In the same way, we have a land to occupy and a world to change. For too long now, the eschatologies of defeat have dominated the Christian landscape. And what has been the result? Well, turn on the news. Look out the window. The world is a mess. Our country is a mess. The state of the church is a mess. And it's time for a change. And that change begins with us, and it should overflow to our own nation and then to the ends of the earth. And that change will begin when we finally start living like we're in the new creation of Revelation 21 through 22, rather than the exodus of Revelation 20. And it makes perfect sense that the new creation Revelation chapters 21 through 22 follows the Exodus, Revelation 20, because that's the pattern in Scripture. Exodus followed by new creation. Going back to Isaiah's prophetic or poetic account of the Exodus, in Isaiah 51, verses 14 through 16 say, The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of armies is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Look at what's going on in the passage. In context, Isaiah is talking about the Jews' exile in Babylon, verse 14, and he's comparing it to the time of the Exodus, verse 15. Just prior to this, he had talked about the original creation when God stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. 
after the Exodus, God established the heavens and founded the earth again, verse 16. In other words, the Exodus brought forth a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And in context, Isaiah is telling the readers that the return from Babylon is going to bring about another new creation, another new heavens and new earth. The book of Revelation follows the same pattern, an exodus leading to a new creation. Revelation 20 is the exodus, the dragon being thrown into the abyss, and Revelation 21 opens with the phrase, there was no more sea, another huge echo of the exodus, as just about everyone recognizes, and then you have the new creation, the new heavens and earth, chapters 21 through 22. This is the pattern in Scripture, and this is where we are today. We're not in exile. We're not in exodus. We're in the new creation. We're in the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is described as a golden city of such mammoth size that it simply cannot be taken literally. In the city, in the, vi- in the vision, the city's measured, and it's 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles uh, high. Um, its length, width, and height are all equal, 1,200 stadia. So if you do the conversion, that's 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles high. And there's a very concrete reason for these dimensions. 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles wide is the approximate size of the known Hellenistic world of the time, according to Craig Coaster. Jeff Voglesang puts it this way, the city was as huge as the known civilized world. It's the same number of square miles as the Roman Empire, according to N.T. Wright. The significance of the size of the city then is that it reflected the size of the geographical area that the gospel had already reached up to that point in time. And the significance of the cubical shape of the city is that it matches the shape of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and temple, which was a perfect cube. As golden cubes, writes Desmond Alexander, the Holy of Holies and the New Jerusalem are clearly connected. G.K. Beale captures the relevance of both the size and the shape of the city when he writes, God's tabernacling presence, once limited to the Holy of Holies, was to be extended throughout the whole earth. Or, as Ken Gentry puts it, the New Jerusalem is a symbol of the redeemed people of God, the people in whom God dwells. Uh, Robert Gundry puts it this way, John's not describing the eternal dwelling place of the saints. He's describing them and them alone. In other words, what the imagery is conveying is we are sacred space. Sacred space is no longer limited to the Holy of Holies in the physical temple in earthly Jerusalem. Sacred space is now anywhere that a true believer plants their feet on the face of the earth. You could say it this way, where God's people are, God's city is. The gospel had been preached to the entire Roman Empire by the time John wrote. Consequently, the golden city 
had already expanded that far. This is the reason for the length and width. And the reason it's 1,500 miles high, reaching up into heaven, is meant to convey the idea that all people everywhere now have direct access to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the New Jerusalem imagery is all about. It's a present reality, and we should be growing the city. Now, of course, most Christians don't see it this way. For them, the New Jerusalem something exclusively in the future. It's a literal city coming down from outer space like a Borg cube. For example, Steve Gregg doesn't see the New Jerusalem as a present reality at all. He writes, the full, the full preterist view obviously makes John's vision of the New Jerusalem a revelation of the New Covenant order since A.D. 70. In my judgment, the vision of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 is that of the future glorified church after the resurrection. It seems obvious that we are to recognize the city as a representation of the community of Christ on earth after we've been glorified in the resurrection. Only by the most counterintuitive and gratuitous exaggeration could the, could the conditions described by John be said to pertain to the present church. Andrew Sandlin concurs. He writes, The Christian hope isn't that we'll live forever in heaven. The Christian hope is that we'll live forever in resurrected bodies, in a resurrected city, on a resurrected earth, with a resurrected Lord, and resurrected saints. Now, did you catch that part? The Christian hope isn't that we'll live forever in heaven. I don't know about you, but when I check out, I'm looking forward to spending eternity in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the new heavens and new earth now. It's a present reality. And right now, we're on the earthly side of it. And while we're here, we do our job, meaning we work and strive to make this world what God intends it to be. In other words, we strive to be the salt and light that He has called us to be. We advance the kingdom, we impact the culture, we grow the city. And our goal should be to leave a better world to the next generation than the previous one left to us. And when we leave, we leave. And we'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into joy today. And then we spend eternity with our Lord and Savior and those we love. This is the Christian hope. But that's not good enough for them. They want to fly back down to earth in that huge board cube of a city and spend the rest of eternity right back here where they left off. For example, taking the language in an almost literal fashion, Steve Gregg says, the New Jerusalem is currently described as above and heavenly, but ultimately it descends from heaven to earth. Now notice, okay, notice this part here. We've got one guy telling us it's a resurrected city, like it's going to rise up from the ashes or something, and then another guy says it's coming down from the sky. Well, coming down from the sky is definitely the more popular view, 
But the problem with this is, if this is a literal city coming down from the sky to hit the earth, it's going to do some serious damage to the earth. Again, the city's mammoth, 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles high. If you set this thing down on the United States, it would stretch halfway across the country from Boston to Kansas City and would reach all the way up beyond the stratosphere and breathable air. As the late Michael Heiser said, this defies literalism to be blunt about it. But that doesn't stop the literalist. In fact, no amount of math or common sense stops them. For example, Randy Alcorn writes, if these dimensions are not literal, why does scripture specifically give the dimensions and then say, by man's measurement, which the angel was using? Well, again, because John wanted his readers to make the connection, he wanted them to connect the dots with the size of the Roman Empire, the area the gospel had already covered up to that point in time. That was the current size of the expanding city when John wrote. Nonetheless, Alcorn says, the emphasis on man's measurement seems almost to be an appeal. Please believe it, this city is really big. So, this really big city is going to fly down from the sky and land on the earth like a spaceship, and they're okay with this. Well, not really. John Walverd detected a problem here. He said nothing is said about the New Jerusalem being created at this point, and he says the language seems to imply that it's been in existence in heaven prior to this event. Now, for whatever reason, this was a problem for him, and it's kind of funny. Of all the difficulties of interpreting the New Jerusalem as a literal city, not to mention dispensationalism's extreme literalism to begin with, this is the one thing that bothered him. When was the New Jerusalem created? Well, in his efforts to resolve this seeming dilemma, he believed he had found the answer in John 14.2. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. So, for the dispensationalist, Jesus has spent the last 2,000 years between his first and second coming putting his carpentry skills to use, building the literal New Jerusalem up in heaven. So that solves that problem, but Walver detected still another problem. The New Jerusalem doesn't actually touch the ground on earth until after the thousand years is over. So where is the literal city during the literal thousand years. Not to worry, he solved that problem there as well. He writes, If the New Jerusalem is in existence throughout the millennium, says Walvard, it could be a satellite city. A satellite city suspended over the earth during the thousand years as the dwelling place, as the dwelling place of resurrected and translated believers who also have access to the earthly scene. And this in turn would solve what he sees as the third otherwise difficult problem of where these resurrected and translated believers would dwell during a period in which 
people are still in their natural bodies living ordinary lives. So the bottom line is if you have a natural body, you're stuck on the earth for a thousand years, but if you have a resurrected body, you get to hang out in the satellite, so that's another problem solved. Now, finally, he solves the most pressing problem of all in the new heavens and new earth. Of course, we're talking about the water shortage. Remember, John said there was no more sea. So how are people going to get water? According to Walverd, he solves the problem. He says, the dimensions of the city aren't really a cube after all, as most assume. It could be in the form of a pyramid, with the sides sloping, at, sloping to a peak at the height indicated. This would have certain advantages, he tells us, not necessarily because the city would be smaller, but because the shape would provide a vehicle for the river of life to proceed out of the throne of God, which seems to be at the top, to find its way to the bottom, assuming our experience of gravity would be somewhat normal also in the new earth. Um, unfortunately, another dispensationalist at the time, Henry Morris, didn't get the memo about gravity because he attempted to explain the problem of how people are supposed to get to the top of the 1,500-mile-high city by the fact that we'll no longer be constrained by gravity in the new heavens and new earth, so we'll be able to move around you know, vertically as well as horizontally, just like the angels. So at the end of the day, I guess the literal interpretation doesn't really solve all the problems after all. And who knows, maybe today's dispensationalist uh, can work out a solution here. But even if they do, it doesn't matter anyway, because the New Jerusalem isn't a literal city. It's a picture of the fellowship that we as believers have with the Lord in His presence, and that's a current reality, and that's what Revelation 21 is all about. And that reality was made possible because Jesus Christ, the new and greater Moses, accomplished the new and greater Exodus, and that's what Revelation 20 is all about. And the thousand years is nothing more and nothing less than a hyperbolic expression meant to speak to the magnitude of that accomplishment. John simply using a common, numer a common uh, rhetorical device, numeric, numeric hyperbole, to get his point across, as so many of the biblical writers before him had done time and again throughout the pages of the Bible. John himself sets out the beginning and end points of the millennium for us in Revelation 20. Again, it begins with the binding of Satan and ends with the outbreak of the war. The symbolic thousand years began when Jesus bound the strong man and ended when the Roman Jewish war broke out. Again, we're not in the millennium now. We're not waiting for the millennium to start. The exodus is over. Our Lord did his job and got us to the promised land. And now we need to start doing our job and slaying some giants. When the Israelites entered Canaan, they weren't supposed to let business continue as usual, and neither are we. The Bible speaks to every area of life, and God's Word was meant to transform every area of life, both individually and collectively. 
God's original image bearers fell in the garden and they introduced sin into the world. The question is, has that sin been comprehensive? In other words, has sin affected every area of life, every aspect of culture, and everything in history? The answer is obvious. Yes, it has. That said, the next question is, is the gospel any less comprehensive than sin? And I say that question, the answer to that question is equally obvious. No, it's not. If anything, I'd say the gospel is more comprehensive. So therefore, it should also affect every area of life, every aspect of culture, and everything in history, both individually and collectively. And that's why I think understanding this is so important. We need to understand that we're not in the millennium anymore. We're not in the exodus. We're in the promised land of the new heavens and new earth, and that should change the way we live and the way we function in society and the way we interact with the culture around us. And um, hopefully that made sense with my uh, issues with the slides. So um, <laughs> if anyone has... Uh, any questions? Anything, yeah, comments? I got, I got some coming in here, but oh. let, me, let me say this before. I think, there, I know that people have a problem with what you did with the numbers, you know, because they mm. feel that's an attack on inspiration. Yeah. You know, when, when you say, well, this number says this, but it's not, so how would you respond, you know, to that question? Okay. To that question, there is uh episode of the Naked Bible Podcast that Michael Heiser did. You'll have to scroll through the episodes, but just look, look at the one where he deals with Exodus 12.37. And you can, you can find this in a lot of literature. David Fouts did a dissertation on it. There's a couple other people um, that worked on this, but Heiser just really puts it really well in the episode, and he kind of summarizes all the data and all the work. The bottom line is, this was a common rhetorical device used in the ancient world. And uh, Heiser gets into it some. If you read Fouts' dissertation, he'll get into this some more. And the last time I talked about this, I talked about this. There are tons of examples in the surrounding literature, um, in the A&E literature, uh, the literature of the ancient Near East, where... Other cultures, other writings do this. They talk about, in the Sumerian kings list, you have kings living like 20,000 years or 50,000 years or something. And the point is that no reader of the time would have taken this literally. And so literate readers of the time were expecting this. They were expecting numeric hyperbole. They were not looking for mathematical accuracy. It was a literary device, basically, to enhance the story. Um, like I talked about special effects in uh, movies, um, like with the Captain America and stuff like that. You have to look at it like this. These were their stories, and these were their special effects. They, the people, this is literature, and literature is an art. And yes, they're giving history, but they're doing it in an artistic way using 
the rhetorical devices of the time. Uh, The Bible's a product of its time. You can't rip it from its time and, you know, make it conform to our standards in 21st century Western America. You need to interpret the Bible in light of the time. And when you do that, to me, this um, is a great apologetic. It's a great defense of the Bible because it just shows that the Bible is a product of his time. And no ancient reader was expecting mathematical accuracy. And like I said, I don't know the the number, but go to the Naked Bible podcast and listen to where uh, Mike deals with that. And um, he does a really nice job, and I think that would... um, and yeah, yeah. There's a search engine. Look for the episode. He Heiser goes through all of Exodus, so you know, just go through those in Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is probably one entire episode. So once you find Exodus 12, you're there. And uh, also, you know what I wanted to say? If you go to uh, if you go to Brian Gadawa's website. Gadawa.com. He actually has David Fout's dissertation post there, posted there. He has a shorter work that Fouts did. You'll probably want to read that. So you have those two works by David Fouts. And then um, Earl Davies also went into that. And they both do a nice job of showing you the same literary device in the, lit- the surrounding literature of the time. So there's, there's really nothing unique about it. Um, but but when you run the numbers, it's definitely hyperbole. I mean, you can't you you can't take it literally. Like you can't have three million people <laughs> exiting Egypt. You know, um, yeah. So you're talking about the new heavens and new earth. I point people to the fact that we're in the reality of the new heavens and earth, yeah. and they respond by saying, "I I don't see that because if there's the Jewish expectation." Like texts like Isaiah 2 that expect that there's going to be prosperity, peace, and the world that I look in now doesn't reflect that, so therefore that can't be a reality. Well, Would you say the reason for that is because uh, God's people, God's church is not living that out in this world? That's, and then it's actually possible to have that kind of prosperity? That's my view. Just real quick, a lot of those passages they pull out are probably... You know, I don't have it in front of me, but a lot of times we, 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 t- we tend to look at stuff in the Old Testament and think it's talking about New Testament times. A lot of them, I think, are describing the blessings that were supposed to come in the Restoration period when the Jews returned from Babylon. And, uh, you know, if they would have been more faithful to the Lord, there probably would have been greater blessings, but they weren't and were not. And that to dovetail with you just, with what you just said. Yeah, in my opinion, I think we should be seeing more progress and we're not because God's people are basically waiting for Jesus to come rescue them out of the world and I believe he's waiting for us to finally do our job and start changing it. And when we're faithful to him, the blessings will come. And, and it starts with personal evangelism. We have to... We have to share the gospel with people. Um, you know, if if someone's going to have an abortion, for example, the key would be to share the gospel with the person so that he, she accepts Jesus as her Lord and Savior, and then her heart will change. So it starts with personal evangelism, but then 
it, it doesn't stop there. Like we live in a real world and we have decisions to make. We have jobs to go to. We interact with this world and God's word should speak to us about how we do that. And yes, I believe if we were more faithful to the Lord, things would be different. Not, not everybody sees it that way, but that's my view, you ask. So, Rick? So, John Walford was a very respected oh, yeah. president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And the things that you shared, thank you, it was a great <laughs> presentation, was great. But you, we see all the gymnastics that he has to do to try to look towards the future of how this is going to work. Yeah. And those are the things we discussed yesterday about the craziness yeah. that dispensationalism puts out into the worldview. But according to what you're saying, from 8026 to 66, this is the 40-year period. So whenever you are the audience that's actually listening to Revelation at the time, which would predate the war, yeah. internally that's telling us that it predates the war. So when they're hearing this, the millennium's over. Oh, I don't know. You know, it, I, I'm not totally 100% sure on the date. Ed actually, Ed Stevens, I think, dates it pretty early. I, Ed, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but I, I think he dates it even earlier than most preterists, somewhere around 62, actually. Right. Whether he's right or not, I don't know, and I just have no way of knowing. To be honest, no, I, I get lost. I get lost in the arguments trying to nail down the specific date. I'd say if he wrote it in 68, I guess... Yeah, it would be. If it, if well, that's what I was curious 62. about. Is that the audience yeah. would be relevant to them? Yeah. They're listening, so they're figuring out where they are in time according yeah. to God's plan, right? Yeah. And so a thousand years, for them, in their mind, that would have been something like what Psalm would say, right? A thousand years is as yesterday. This is yesterday. In, so in they already, yeah. this has already occurred. They've been that's living true. in the millennium. You know, that that's a good point, too. Let's say he wrote it in 68. In a thousand years is as yesterday. So they're in the last hour. That's giving them as mean. yesterday. That's a really good point. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm just I'm just not real dogmatic on the date, except to say it wasn't '96. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not dogmatic. It's pre '80 70. Yeah. Yeah. Amy. I just have another question about something uh -oh. like that. The, the 40 years. I usually hear you know that period is from 40 to 70 A.D. So when you pick 26, are we saying Jesus was not born in like. No, he was born. It's zero, year zero. He was born a few years earlier, so that he was 30 and 26. Yeah. Um, when I first did this, and I can't remember. I mean, I could I could send you or anyone what I used. What I was going by, I think he said actually 4 BC or 3 BC, and I think David, you've done some 3 BC. Yeah, 3 BC. Yeah. So. Three or four BC, David goes with three BC, so then you'd be you'd be looking at sixty-seven to sixty-six. Well, it makes more sense because then yeah, uh, you have time for Satan to be um, unbound that, and loose. Whereas if you put it forty to seventy, you didn't have any space. That's the key, and I know I, I'm pretty sure Max King said basically forty or thirty to seventy. I think forty years, thirty to seventy. But that was always my problem. I mean, I don't interpret stuff uber literalist here or anything, but still, there is a short season in there where Satan's released, and it's like it leaves no room for it, like you're saying. So um, if you go with, uh, and, and I think in and of itself the evidence is good, 
three BC, David. I, I I think whoever when I was doing this, it was four BC. But so that puts Jesus binding Satan, you know, in twenty six or twenty seven, somewhere around there, and then you still have that uh, few years right there to account for when Satan's released. And then the key is to me, he's released to gather the nations together for the war. So no matter how you want to date it, if you want to get that nitty-gritty, the point is, that's like what happened. It was the war. He gathered the nations together for the war, and the zealots start the uprising, and it all just kind of fits. Yeah. So that 30 to 70, I was always like, wait a minute, there's you know, that missing piece that we got to fit in there. Um, like you say, Bob, we get caught up on the details. Yeah. Too much. I... That's just the way we we're wired, most of us, you know. It's a 40 year period. When I try to. Um, well, like I guess it helps nail in some, it some form of fashion, but this is where we get ourselves in trouble with a lot of scripture, just like with the hyperboles. Yeah. We want everything to be neat and structured. Yeah. You know, and that's not always how the Bible works. And like, details are good, but, but at right. a certain point. Sort of right. Yeah, like even when when I was when Rick was talking about the date, it's like one thing I'm sure of. Right. It was written before AD 70, because yes. Nero was on the throne when he wrote. Yeah. That I'm sure of. Right. And uh, oh, yeah. Ken Gentry's book, Before Jerusalem Fell, just you know, if you don't believe that, read the book. That's what I'm sure of. Then when I started to, uh, is it was it written in 66, 68, 62? Right. Like. Everybody sounds good to me, and it's just too much. It's just like information overkill. So, so I just sort of stop there, you know. Uh, but a lot of the questions that are coming in are asking specific things about numbers. Like oh. uh, Norm says, "Excellent, Bob. Is it possible that the inflated numbers being honorary could also be applied to the generations in Genesis?" And someone asks, asks, "What about the census? Were those literal numbers?" I mean, I don't know. The oh, numbers. I just. I just don't know at that point. I, I the examples I picked out. Um, as a matter of fact, there there are a lot of the ones uh, Mike uh, he, Michael Heiser used. So if you listen to that episode, so I kind of mirrored that, except for the sand of the sea and uh, Samson. And then what was the other one he said? Oh, the ages in Genesis. I just honestly don't know. But there's a guy named Craig Olson who has an article called. Uh, how old was Father Abraham? And it's it's a short article based on his dissertation where he doesn't take those uh, lifespans literally. And Olson's coming out with a uh, with a monograph with a book version of his dissertation on that. I have no idea how I feel about that. Um, I just I just have no idea. But I just wanted to let people know that Olson's work is out there. You know, if you want to drill down on that some more and kind of. You can make definitive statements on what numbers are literal, what numbers are high. You know, I mean, yeah. how do we know? How, how would we know? Yeah. You know? Uh, here's a question that came in. It says, since the Exodus is over, and we are living in the new creation, the new covenant, why do believers still put themselves under old covenant rules? Seems like we still want to be part of Egypt. Ah. Uh, I think it's the church is doing that for the most part. Yeah. If, well, 
I guess I guess it would depend on what old covenant rules you're talking about, because like David, you've talked about before, nine of the ten commandments are repeated. So, you know, if you think "thou shall not kill" and "thou shall not commit adultery" is an old covenant rule, well, it's <laughs> right. right a new covenant rule too. Say you know, tithing. Yeah, <laughs> tithing is an old covenant rule. So you know, it gets down into the nitty gritty. Um, so I wouldn't. I would not advocate full-scale antinomianism where we can just live however we want. I think we do have to live uh, godly and righteous lives. Um, we have a standard that Jesus clearly laid out. But a lot of these churches with their legalistic rules, which are things the scribes and Pharisees did, they come up with a lot of uh, uh, Rules and dictates that aren't in the Bible, and they expect they, you know, you're not really a Christian if you're following those. And then, yeah. So I guess that's where I would be on. Jan from uh, Florida asked. She said, "To me, a thousand years is a long time." <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be to most people, I guess. If a thousand years can be just a symbol for forty literal years, then how can forty years also be described as soon and shortly? It seems like it's both a big and a small number. Well, you know what? It kind of, in a way, it kind of is. And if you go to 2 Peter 3, Peter's almost saying that because it's funny that, and, and we had talked about this um, some this weekend, the futurists, the dispensationalists, for every time text you give them, the answer is always 2 Peter 3. Right, yeah. Thousand years is like a day to the Lord, and it's you know there's 101 time texts in the New Testament, and supposedly this one passage answers all of them. Well, it does say a thousand years, something that seems long to us, is like a day, something that's short to God. But people forget it also says the opposite: a day, something that seems short to us, is like a thousand years, something that seems long to us, to the Lord. So it kind of does say both. That's why I don't think that passage is good, a good argument either way. Because someone can use it to say soon doesn't really mean soon. It means a long time. Well, if you take the other side of that coin, that Second Peter 3 coin, right. it should have happened even faster because it says both things. You know, 40 years would have been a really long time for people who are selling their properties, waiting for the Lord to return, saying coming soon, Yeah, afflicted. And that would have seemed like a long time to them. It would, it would have seemed like a real long time. You know, look at us. If somebody says, you know, oh, this is going to happen 40 years from now, we're like, okay, so? So. <laughs> what if they told us 40 years? Which mathematically, 40 years, 45 years is only an hour to God. This is true. Yeah, and Rick Carter has a great article on that. Uh, did you post it anywhere besides Facebook? I'll paste it on my Facebook. Okay, go to Rick Carter's Facebook page. Yeah. Facebook page. Oh, okay, on Burroughs Berea Facebook page. Gary? Well, to be a dead horse, maybe this hyperbole. So, was the world created in six days? And how long was the 40 year exodus? Was it 40 minutes? or? Uh, oh, I, I take that. I have no reason to understand the 40 year exodus as anything other than 40 years. Um, it, to me, it's, to me, like, common sense has to dictate and there's nothing 
that when we read that, that we'd say, well, that couldn't be 40 years. You know, that was 40 years. But if you take, um, you know, some of the other examples and you do the math, like it just doesn't work. And I will say this, skeptics and critics, if you want to get out there and do some apologetics, they're going to use, they do, they use these numbers. And you just pull, you know, the work of David Fouts and Michael Heiser out, bam, you've answered them. So this isn't really a criticism of the Bible. This is an apologetic to defend the Bible because the Bible is a product of its time. And uh, but but to, to say, how would you determine? That's how I would do it. If you see, you know, number in the Bible and it looks kind of insane. Do the math. As a matter of fact, there's a website called the Puritan Board. I don't know if it's still up there, but the guy's last name is Walsh. I think it's Edward Walsh. But it's something like some things that bother me about the numbers in the Bible. So that should get you started to find it. But he is a civil construction engineer, and he worked out the numbers for those 142,000 animals sacrificed in one day and that's actually where I got the stats um, and I he he's not he doesn't I don't want to misrepresent the guy he's not a full preterist and he probably doesn't even agree with my view of the millennium but I was like hey you know um, do you mind if I use these and he didn't have a problem with it but if you can find that on the Puritan board uh, I believe his name's Ed Walsh he he lays it all out right there with those 142,000 animals sacrificed in one day. Just don't search um, my name on the Puritan board. What's that? Don't search my name on the Puritan board. Oh, don't search Jeff's name on the Puritan board. Everybody hear that? <laughs> when, um, when the, uh, I mean, the, the numbers you were saying, it's got to do with the type of narrative it is. I mean, the Exodus is not the narrative where they're telling their story and yeah. they're exaggerating their numbers. It's more about here's what happened historical. So a lot the of thing that of it is, the part I, two. I, you know, I think the genres overlap I mean and a good story does it's like think about Matthew 24 we talk your message that Rick Welch was talking about we talk about apocalyptic language the sun will be dark and the stars will fall from the sky obviously we can't take that literally but in that same passage Matthew 24 earthquakes wars rumors of wars that's literal there's nothing Hyperbolic. There's nothing symbolic. There were earthquakes. There were wars. There were rumors of wars. But in that same space of that chapter, you have the stars falling from heaven, which you can't possibly take literally because if one star hits the planet, it obliterates it. So, I you know I don't always think it's always an either or. It, if you if you're going through any piece of literature, you're going to have a combination. I believe of uh, different genres, different literary techniques, you know, the author doing different things. And he could be telling a historical narrative and then use some of these literary devices to spruce it up, to make it interesting for the reader. You know, these were real people reading their stories, hearing their stories. They didn't have TV. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have the theater. They This was what they heard. This were, was their stories. That they were meant to be exciting and engaging and um, if the surrounding cultures use certain literary techniques of course 
a Hebrew's going to want, hey, what, you know, they don't want just some dry uh, encyclopedia entry. You know, it's literature. It's meant for a purpose. It's meant to stir emotion. It's meant to paint pictures. So, you know, I think it kind of has all of that working together. Um, Rick? I also think, like, in regard to the Exodus, the Bible always tells us how old Moses was when these things were happening. Like, oh. he was 40 and he goes into the wilderness. He comes back to save him at the age of 80. Then he takes them out and they're in the wilderness for 40 years. And he dies at 120. So yeah. you get, this is a man's life and these things that happen inside. So we know it can be literal. Then, yeah. And then the symbology, you know, later. Yeah, and then, you know it's literal, but then at the same time, you know there's something going on with 40. Because right. that's, you know, like the good kings die at age 40 or whatever. They reign 40 years, 40 you know years. what I'm saying? Like, I don't necessarily think it's neither or. I think... This king probably did reign 40 years, and there's some symbolic significance to it. So, yeah. I got a question about the timing of the binding and releasing. Um, in your, you're stating that by, Satan was bound. Yeah. At, at the wilderness with Christ. That's what I believe. Yeah. I, I can agree with that. Yeah. The releasing of Satan, you're saying, is at the war. Is it basically at the time of the war? That, that's what I. That's what I think. I think it's at the war. I think that's when he was released because. Okay. It says he'll be bound to deceive the nations. Right. And this is something else. Um, even though he wasn't a preterist, this was a really good point. Go to Michael Heiser's podcast on Revelation 20. He gets into the word for deceived. It has to have something to attach it to. It's not just deception. It's deception in what way? It needs something to attach itself to. It always does. While Scripture interprets Scripture, it's attached to gathering the nations together for the war. So he deceives the nations, and when he's released, that tells you how he deceived the nations. He was bound from deceiving them in order to gather them together for the war. So I think both things. That's specifically why he was bound, he couldn't start the war prematurely. And why? Because the gospel had to reach the entire Roman Empire. God had to make sure it was spread. The seed was spread before the temple came down. That's the way he wanted to do it. So Satan had to be held at bay so that he didn't launch the war prematurely because everything wasn't set in place yet. Well, how do we we parse out then the, the, the Last Supper talk where Judas is possessed by Satan oh, in order to because the binding it goes back to the binding was specifically with regard to his ability to deceive the nations to initiate the war that's it gotcha. and that's that's what because here here's Mike's view Heiser's view was he basically I don't know what he was but Satan was bound back during his earthly ministry and for Heiser, he was going to be released in the future to launch Armageddon. But for Heiser, Satan's obviously active after he's bound. So how do we reconcile it? And that's when he goes back to he's bound very specifically, not in every way imaginable. It's his ability to deceive the nations to inaugurate the war. Gotcha. 
So that's that's basically kind of my short answer to it. And, and it's, Mike, Michael Heiser explains that like Jesus tricked, deceived Satan. Oh yeah. And, and part of that was you know luring him into using Judas yeah. as an instrument to accomplish his ends and his death was something that um, the cross is something that Satan did not. I know he, he's fa he's fantastic on that, and that's the whole thing is divine deception because it says. If the rulers of this age would have known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And, uh, you know, I take... The, you'll see a lot of arguments like, well, these are human rulers. No, these are spiritual rulers. And I think David has said this before. It's not an either-or. It's both and. Like, the powers of darkness wanted them dead. The Jews wanted them dead. And the Jews were basically... Satan's tool, Satan's pawn right. to accomplish his purposes and God in his sovereignty deceived them all into thinking they're going to win if they do this but it was his plan all along. Mm -hmm. Let's wrap it up with this question. Okay. Well, this is good. It comes from the Falster Farm. Okay. And they basically said, what examples do you all offer today to actually take action? And then she gives examples, uh, run oh. for local office, stand against porn, help those who are addicted to drugs. In other words, we're talking about we're supposed to be influenced in this culture. <clears throat> They're just asking what kind of examples would you give to that? Well, every, everything she just said, and I would say whatever area of life God has placed you in. And honestly, <laughs> I said this before, but, um, you know, he's spoken here before, Jordan Grant. He stood up here and gave two lectures applying his knowledge that he's accumulated as a doctor in the medical field and applying critical thinking and challenging people to think differently. So I think, I think Jordan Grant, Dr. Jordan Grant, is a great example of somebody who is applying God's Word to his specific area of life. Now, we're not all doctors. I drive a truck for a living. But we're supposed to do everything we do unto the glory of God and for God's glory. And no matter where you are, you know, you just be a shining example as an employee to your employer and fellow co-workers of how Christians think, live, and act. And, you know, from uh, <laughs> from every level of society, you know what I mean? Um just ask ask the Lord, how can I be? How can I let your light shine through what I do? Um, and uh, you know, there's Gary North would talk about vocation and calling. They're not always the same, but because your vocation's one thing, your calling might be something else. But apply your calling to your vocation. You know, whatever it is. But thanks for those examples. Very good. Yeah, Very I think good. it's like First John two. You know, um, you that say you abide in Christ ought to walk as He walked. That's the bottom line. We're supposed to walk like Christ. We're supposed to be an example of who Christ is in the world we live in. Yeah. Love your neighbor. Yeah. So, oh, well, yeah, I worked with international students at a local university, and I was talking to three Kenyan men, and I was telling them their country is great with resources. And they said, yeah. no, I said, our government and other governments give you money and there's corruption. I said, you need to learn things and go back there. 
and take dominion over and, yeah you know wake people up they said well the problem is these pastors come into churches and tell us Jesus is coming soon and not to get involved so that is the problem yeah. yeah they have the same problem that we have and that is the root of it and until that changes I don't think God's people are going to change anything and most Christians rightly identify evil and the evils in our society. But for them, and David Chilton has said this in Paradise Restored, it's almost like bad news is good news because it means the expected goal, the total collapse of civilization and the destruction of the world is coming. And it's like we need to get out of that mindset. Um, otherwise, otherwise, it's going to be worse for the next generation than it was for ours. We're going to, we're going to hand on Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, okay, I'm getting, being told to wrap it up. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody here. Thanks for joining us at home. Um, thank you all so much. And, uh, see you next week. <laughs>